You are listening to Humanities Engaged, where we take a closer look at the value of a liberal arts education. I'm Steve McFarlane, and I teach philosophy in the Division of Humanities at the University of Minnesota Morris. I'm joined by UMM student and brains of the operation, Adam Kretz. Say hi, Adam. Hey there, everybody. Thank you for listening. You'll hear me chime in occasionally during the interview with a couple questions, and I'll join Steve afterwards to discuss what we learned. We are coming to you from the University of Minnesota Morris, made possible with funding from the Mellon Foundation. Please join us as we interview UMM faculty to learn how they teach and why they teach. Today's guest is Dr. Arna Kildegard. Dr. Kildegard is a professor in the Department of Economics and Management, and he's the chair of the Division of Social Sciences. Dr. Kildegard got his PhD from the University of Texas, Austin. I, I uh, come from a family of humanities people. Uh, my dad was a, was a uh, theologian at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago, so his buddies were sort of the leading lights of the Lutheran movement in the United States. And, uh, you know, he was a lesser light, but he was a light nonetheless. And, uh, you know, they were, there were lots of interesting conversations around the dinner table with those guys. Uh, one of the things I remember is that they were, they were all agnostic. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, right. And, you know, when they, when they actually went out into the rural churches and, the, you know, into the, <clears throat> into the world of actual flesh and blood Lutheranism, the blood would kind of drain out of their faces and <laughs> they would question their career choices. But uh, oh, wow. anyway, that was, that was uh, my dad's work. And my mom was a children's librarian and a storyteller. And, uh, you know, both of them were sort of idealistic and, you know, they went through their hippie phase in the late 60s and early 70s where they were wearing dashikis and, <laughs> you know, very, um, you know, finding their, finding their, uh, their inner spirit kind of thing. Um, I don't know. So, so no, my childhood environment was not steeped in economics, not, not by any stretch of the imagination, in fact. I took one undergraduate course from a very uninspiring uh, guy at Gustavus Adolphus College, where I went to undergraduate. And then see, how did I get into, I, I wound up graduating into the world in 1981, which was sort of the low moment in employment since the Great Depression. Right. I mean, even worse than the class of 2009 or 2010. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a degree in journalism, and uh, after six months of unemployment, I wound up uh, <coughs> working in an editorial job, sort of a production side of, a, of an academic journal uh, on the University of Chicago campus. And it was affiliated with a public policy research kind of, uh, there was a building devoted to that, had various nonprofit organizations, American Planning Association, American Public Works Association, various sorts of organizations that shared a common library. And a lot of the, a lot of the people who used it were graduate students at the University of Chicago in the public policy program. And so for three years, I labored away on that kind of thing and got to know some of those guys and, and wound up reviewing books on you know, tax increment financing or <laughs> <laughs> one damn thing or another. What does that mean exactly? Like reviewing books is that kind of a special term, or no? Well, it was a it was a sort of bibliographic publication that that scanned everything that that knew that was being published in the field of public policy, and so we had to have we had to have something to say about it and write a you know one hundred word review or something okay, like that. Gotcha. So anyway, I wound up enrolling in the School of Public Policy at uh, the University of Chicago, which is where I took my first serious economics. It was kind of kind of revealing. I don't know. It sounds silly now, but you have to sort of cast your mind back to the 1980s. And, you know, there was this wave of sort of uh, conservative uh, thought and uh, that, was, that was entirely new and esoteric to me. Uh, uh, people talking about the way markets allocated resources. And, you know, it, it seemed like unlike the sort of um, moralist way that, that my, that I'd grown up thinking about public policy problems. It seemed, it's, it was sort of my first exposure to sort of systemic ways of, of thinking about uh, what caused what. And, uh, and so it was intriguing to me. 
and uh, anyway, that was my that was my first ex- real exposure to economics. It was yeah. at, it was at the master's level. Yeah, and kind of just incidental contact that got into it kind of just burly and burly and once you became exposed to it at that from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I also started traveling, uh, so my job didn't pay very much, but it uh, gave me lots of time off, and I started spending summers. What can you do when you have a lot of time off and not very much money? I started traveling internationally in Latin America and got sort of, I don't know, the the travel bug hit me just with sort of a ferocious vengeance. I hadn't done that in college, and all of a sudden it just, I don't know, it really appealed to me. and so I managed ultimately to sort of cobble together an interest in development economics and an area interest in Latin America. Yeah, can you, can you say what's the type of questions or what's the type of activities you do when you're studying specifically develop, developmental economics? Well, so for the, for the first 15 years or so of my career, I worked on sort of macro development issues so, so, so one sort of recurring theme in Latin American development challenges is these sort of massive uh, speculative attacks that hit currencies periodically and just sort of burn down everything in the path. And so there's a really interesting economics literature about why that is and when, w- whether, specula- whether speculation of that sort is, a, is an entirely random stochastic kind of process or whether it, uh, whether it can be driven by a very rational process. So if we're going to talk about speculation on the currency, mm-hmm. and maybe we don't, we, don't, we don't have to get formal about stochastic or something, but just if it, is, is it makes sense or does it not make sense? Is it just mm-hmm. like random forces versus making sense? What yeah. is what is speculation in the currency, especially at these like country, you know, nationwide levels? Yeah, uh, you're yeah. talking about Argentina. Chile? Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about Mexico. I'm talking about Brazil. I'm talking about uh, 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 Argentina, uh, Chile. So I'm a little bit removed of this because part of the okay. story <laughs> that I was getting to was okay, that, that when I came to Morris in 2001, I really decided I did not want to be that guy in the corner office worrying about the other side of the world and not having anybody local to talk to. Oh, so okay. I, I did kind of reinvent myself okay. at mm. that point to work on other things. I see. Okay, let's talk about that. So then, so, so what are some local, more local issues that you got involved in that's, that's driving your current interest? Yeah, so um, I, was, I was trained by a guy named Pete Wilcoxon, who was at the University of Texas where I was studying. He's now at Syracuse, I believe, but he was the... Uh, uh, he was the climate economics guy at the Brookings Institution, which is a left-leaning think tank in Washington, D.C. He's still affiliated with them. Uh, really smart guy. Exactly my age, only much more accomplished and <laughs> <laughs> out there. Anyway, uh, he w- he's an environmental economic economist, and I took his classes. And uh, so that's been, I've, I've sort of had that that research area in my hip pocket all along. But when I got to Morris, I really decided, okay, I want to throw in all in on that. Specifically, I started to notice that, uh, you know, the college itself, there was a guy named Lowell Rasmussen here. He was Brian Herman's predecessor as the uh, vice chancellor of finance and facilities. And Lowell hosted a little conference, I think uh, it was spring break of my first year here in 2001. Uh, or 2002, that would have been by then. And he host, hosted a little conference sort of uh, uh, on renewable energy technologies and the possibilities for people in the region to get a little piece of the action or plug into that somehow or, or you know, what they ought to pay attention to in terms of trends and developments. And uh, that just seemed like that might be a good fit for me to sort of, I mean, you come out of graduate school with this little head full of ideas and tools and, you know, and then then you find yourself in a little town in western Minnesota. <laughs> okay, what, what can I work on that is interesting? It will continue to be generative for me, but at the same time, um, some sort of builds community in an interesting way. Yeah. yeah. So reaching out, you're not just, not just happy with papers coming out, but you want to make a difference to actual people's yeah, lives. Yeah, and I, and I had an instinct. By this point, you know, I, I sort of, you know, I could sort of see you know, what I needed to do in order to advance here to full professor and sort of, you know, do what was necessary. I could sort of figure out what the institution wanted of me and there was enough wiggle room there that I could, I could, I could still accomplish that, but at the same time um, connect to the place in a way. And I've been kind of peripatetic, you know, my, I came with two kids and a wife 
and uh, uh, we had lived in, uh, uh, oh, my wife and I lived in Chicago. My kids were born in Austin, Texas. My first job was the University of Mississippi. I did a, a one-year position at Tulane in New Orleans. I went back to Mississippi, and then I took a job in, at the Universidad de Guanajuato in central Mexico. And uh, that's where I was when when I moved to Morris. So, you know, the point is that I was I was dragging these poor people all around <laughs> two, two countries yeah. over a period of 10 years or so. Yeah. And uh, it looked like, okay, it's time to give them a chance to sit still and grow up in one place. <laughs> and uh, Morris turned out to be, yeah, turned out to be that place. So, so now we're at Morris. Now you've been teaching here for a while. Mm-hmm. What are some ideas that you bring about teaching? Do you try to incorporate applications like you do in your research? Do you try to get your students to think about applications for in the classroom? Or are you more just straightforwardly teaching them economic principles? What type of, how do you, how do you view your role in the classroom? Well, so I continue to be interested in economic theory, mm-hmm. but not not for economic theory's sake mm-hmm. you know it's 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 a powerful way to sort of figure out uh why things turn out the way they do you know i mean some something as simple as the uh, d- the tragedy of the commons for example is an example of sort of individual rationality leading to collective irrationality mm-hmm. and there's economics is full of sort of explanations like that that yeah. are uh, you know it, it's not necessary to to invoke uh, you know, corruption or stupidity or, you know, some other uh, extraneous kind of explanation for things. Often you wind up with some sort of perverse outcome because the way the, sy- the systemic incentives are set up, mm-hmm. it sort of leads inexorably to that thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, and so that's, a, that's kind of a, a new way of thinking. It was new for me when I first came across it. Yeah. And I think it's new for students for the most part. Yeah. And so, I, you know, when I think of how I want to teach, I want to introduce them to those, you know, to those insights from game theory and microeconomics uh, that are really counterintuitive, but that sort of open up a way of looking at the world that is different, mm-hmm. right? And then are, are, do you encourage them to, like, find examples of these things in their life and turn to attention to them? Or how are, your, how are you structuring your assignments to make sure that they're picking up on the concept that you're trying to get across? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I guess my general feeling about that is that is that college kids don't have enough experience to draw on, to sort of come up with. I haven't been very successful successful trying to draw out of them what, how, how their own life experiences confirm this. Yeah. So, you know, I spend a lot of time making sure they sort of understand the mechanics of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. lots of problem sets and... and uh, but then lots of lots of examples from that that they would have no way of having had exposure to, you know, uh-huh. like the, here's this funny thing that happened in the airline industry, or yeah. this, here's this funny thing that happened, you know, when Mexico tried to, you know, keep gas prices down in the 1980s, or you know, th- these are, you know, why would they know that? Why would anybody know that? Um, I feel like I maybe my comparative advantage as a faculty member is the ability to take some structure from the theory and put meat on it and put you know intriguing anecdotes so yeah yeah do you have a a salient example for somebody like me who i haven't been in an economics class how is there an example that could help me understand the idea you're drawing up here uh well do you know do you know the tragedy of the commons oh right i was going to ask about that i'm not i'm not super familiar with that okay so it's uh it's sort of classically articulated by Garrett Hardin back in the 1960s, um, and so the 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 um, classic example is of a sort of a shared commons on which the villagers graze their cattle. And when you think about it, <coughs> the trouble is that the that the pasture itself has a limited grazing capacity; it can only hold so many cows. But from the point of view of every individual villager if they add an extra cow onto the pasture they get the full value of that cow once it's fat and marketable but what what that cow does is it degrades the pasture for everybody else so they're so they're basically socializing the cost of a degraded pasture and privatizing the benefit of a fat cow 
right? right? And, and so they're acting perfectly rational, but when everybody does that, you wind up with a pasture that supports a, m a much lower stock of cattle all overall than it would if you would just like limit the population on it. Mm, perfect, thank you. And then do you and then do you have a uh, real life cases of so 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 Adam's original question is, what's like a real life case where we've seen something like that? Well, so the Iraq War, for example, was fought. So uh, uh, Kuwait and Iraq share a, a common oil field, and the Kuwaitis were famous. So, so just picture a big underground reservoir. It's not quite that simple, but picture that. And you can put straws down into it in various places and suck the oil up. And the Kuwaitis were, you know, systematically putting, you know, dozens and dozens of straws into the ground right next to the Iraqi border and trying to suck all the oil over to their side. And Iraq was trying to get them to stop and they wouldn't and the Iraq invaded and so the rest is yeah the rest is history S so yes yeah, so um you've mentioned a few times that causal the causal mechanics of things is maybe a partic particular interest to you and a number of our guests have been saying that when you think of like for instance history you shouldn't just think this happened it's this caused this which is why we have this now right or um anthropologists can talk about how the environment that these people were in explains, causally explains why this practice came about, but it might not come about in some, some other location, some other eco ecological setting or something like that. Mm -hmm. So is that is that a fair way to say that uh, a particular, particular interest to you is cause and effect here, like causal stories? Well, in institutional structures, so how to manage a common resource, because, yeah. you know, as we have, what, 7 billion people on Earth now, an awful lot of things are turning out to be finite that didn't seem to be before, right? Mm -hmm. And so the problem of, of common pool resources and how they're rationally managed uh, is getting more important all the time. Yeah. Right? So so an interesting thing, I'm just I'm just forgetting her name right now, but there's a there's a uh, political scientist at the at Indiana University who passed away recently. She won the Nobel Prize for Economics. Ostrom? For her work. Yeah, Elaine Ostrom. Yeah. Who um, <coughs> so took Garrett Hardin's idea seriously enough to actually go out and see how people in, um, in different places around the world managed a commons in practice. And, you know, that it, it turns out there's a long human history of uh, cooperation to manage the commons. Yeah. <laughs> and that's often remarkably successful and one of the one of the key drivers between a failure that leads to you know almost instantaneous degradation of the commons is if the uh, central government doesn't recognize the existing uh, sort of artisanal structures that are in place and moves in and takes over and says we have to manage this then from the point of view of the locals, it's like, well, this just belongs to the government now. Before it was ours, and we were managing it. We had all these informal rules, and you know, now it's, you know, who knows? Those thieves off in Washington D.C. or Mexico City or wherever the federal government is, they're they're the ones who own it now, so we can just pilfer from it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Ostrom's work sort of talked about various kinds of commonses and how they how they collapsed when. <laughs> When the good-intentioned, you know, central government uh, took over and, yeah. and blew up a set of existing institutions they didn't recognize were in place. Yeah. So then it sounds to me like a lot of this is going to be um, interdisciplinary. Even if you're in an economics class, you got to know the psychology of the people or sociolo sociology of the groups and how they interact. you got to know the po uh, political science of the institutions and things like that. So do you, do you view economics as, you know, fitting into the liberal arts picture where there's always going to be, um, you know, multiple disciplines kind of intersecting or is, or is that not really? Oh, I do. And I think, yeah. I think that's really, I think that's really happening. I think that, that some of the best social science is happening where economists and, and uh, um, anthropologists and psychologists are talking to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think economics should be a part of that conversation? You know, do you oh, think people are be. missing? Yeah, it has to be. Yeah, right. So there's uh, uh, my colleague Steve Burks here. You should talk to Steve. He's an interesting guy. I don't know if you've interviewed him yet or not. not but yet. Uh, he and I were at a conference where uh, one of his mentors, a guy named Gintis, Herb Gintis, was giving a talk. 
back in about 2004, 2005, and uh, Gintis's argument went like this. He was saying, uh, you know, a hundred years ago or so, the sciences got their act together. So where the chemists were saying one thing, and it was, it, and the biologists were looking at the same phenomenon and saying something completely different, and the physicists were looking at the same thing and saying something completely different, those differences got kind of ironed out. And so, I mean, it, be, it, it became uh, unacceptable to have, you know, competing, contradictory explanations for the same phenomenon. Well, social sciences took another century to begin <laughs> to sort of address that. But, I mean, it's clearly it's been the case that, you know, psychologists and economists have had completely different explanations for, for how people manage risk and how they think about rewards and how they avoid punishments or whatever it is. Uh, that's starting to change, and, and that's, you know, it's about time. But, yeah, yeah economics is, is in the game. And so, and so students who are at a liberal, liberal arts college, it's a good idea for them to get some economics classes. Should they try to fit that in? Where would you, how do you view it in the liberal arts kind of context, uh, economics classes? Yeah. So a class in macro economics is sort of like a basic citizenship class. It, it introduces you to, okay, what is this? Cause, because it's the sea that we all swim in. You know, what is, what is GDP and what, what is the business cycle? That turns out to be an incredibly important phenomenon, mm -hmm. you know, says the guy who graduated in 1981 <laughs> when, when the world was, was nasty, brutish, and short. Um, uh, so... So macro is is very you know I I think people should do that just because you know in the same way you ought to have had a civics class of some sort about how you know what are the three branches of government and yeah. how do they work <laughs> you know you ought to be able to say this is and this is what the Federal Reserve is and this is what fiscal policy is and this is what monetary policy is and that's just part of a general education uh, the kind of stuff I've been talking about is more is more sort of micro based. And I think that's where a lot of the interesting stories come from. So for somebody who'd like to have their cha their thinking challenged a little bit in that regard, maybe the mic a micro class would be a good place to start. Yeah, so, so macro is like kind of large structures, large topics about like the whole economy. Um, and then micro is more like how does the individual make decisions in conditions of risk or competition or something exactly. like that? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, we've been real curious to ask professors what advice you might have for students to kind of get the most out of their classes or just their time in college in general. And it could, could be maybe something specific for your classes that, that you found like helpful for your students in your classes. But uh, yeah, do you have any insight in that department? Studying advice that maybe uh, are transferable across disciplines. Um, I used to I discovered this trick when I was about a junior. You know, I, sh I wish I'd discovered it earlier. But you know, Ooh, as, I, as I was <laughs> as I was lying in bed at night before going to sleep, uh, I would think back to the class and try and try revisit. Okay, what were the main takeaways out of you know what was the subject? Or if I had to describe, if I had to call my grandmother right now and describe to her what it was we were talking about, what would I say? And uh, and what were the key? What were the sort of most insightful parts of that, right? So, so learning, you know, transferring things from short-term to long-term memory is a process, and I worry a little bit about that because it's a process that happens in downtimes, you know, when you're sitting waiting for the bus or something like that, and, uh, you know, it's not a very original thought to say it, but, you know, the time we spend on, on our cell phones and now is, is like preempting that time. Oh, right? interesting. That used to be useful for, like... It looks like daydreaming to the outside observer when you're just kind of staring at the sky. But some really important sort of cognitive things are happening in that process. So, I, so I used to do that. I'm in the process of falling asleep, and it would help me fall asleep too. So. Oh, <laughs> nice! No, yeah, yeah, I two, like that one a, a lot. Two, it's a twofer. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't had, we haven't gotten a lot of like specific hacks like that. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So explain. So how would you explain this to someone who has no idea what you're talking about? Is that the is that the like you said, thinking how you explain to your grandma or something like that. Is how that would I explain? Uh, I'm talking about the classes. Like if, yeah. I, if I was in a class and somebody was teaching me about about uh, you know the, the tragedy of the commons, yeah. you know, I'd, I'd try and think, okay, that's something I'd never heard of. And what was it again? It was something about cows in a pasture, <laughs> and 
individuals socializing the losses and privatizing the benefits and okay i'd try and process that a little bit so, okay I so see. you know i could explain it in as simple language as possible yeah. and you know once i had it in the simple language then i could you know i can fancify it later but uh you know, they have sort of the ba basic architecture of the argument yeah and honestly when i'm trying to give students assignments or even like written exam questions that's what I want to see from them is in your own words, can you like right. put this in this, the, the heart of the things that we've been saying? There's lots of details and it sounds as though the details aren't important, but right. can you get the core ideas and put them plainly? Right. And you, do, you, do you pursue that as well in your classes from the students? Is that the... Well, I try to be, yeah. I mean, yeah. I try to take complex ideas and make them really simple. Yeah. Right. So, I, I mean, that, that's doing some like, chew, you know, pre-chewing the food for them or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, and is that but you know, they can get, the students can get lost in this. I mean, and, it, and it's partly, I mean, it's, it's not entirely their fault. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I used the word peripatetic earlier. And you're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> well, okay, sorry. I apologize <laughs> for that. Um, and, but, but students, when they see a faculty member using faculty member kind of language, they think, okay, the game here is to be as as uh, sort of fancy sounding as possible. That's not the game. Right. <laughs> that's right. not the game. It may look totally. that way, but that's actually, that's actually the opposite of the game. The game is to make it, and, and this is a, a truth I've noticed from sort of observing the smartest people in my field, you know, the really top-notch economists. And, they, you know, there's only probably a hundred of them. There's 35,000 members of the American Economic Association. There's probably about 50 who are, <laughs> who are really, really bright. And what they can do <laughs> is they stand up in front of an audience and they take, they can synthesize an incredibly complex literature or a set of complex ideas into something like just dead simple. You know, it's an art. It's a, it's a, it's an art, a gift that, that to radically simplify without uh, doing, uh, without doing damage to the ideas themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so is there a big um, substantive takeaway that, that students, you hope students get from your class? So for instance, in anthropology, maybe they hope that, you know, the big idea that 10 years from now or 20 years from now, and I'm thinking back, mm -hmm. human diversity is so, is like, you, have to, you just cannot take into, you know, you cannot overemphasize how different some people's practices are and there might be reasons for that. And um, some other people have like some big ideas like that. Is there a big idea that you hope someone takes either from a specific class of yours or any class of yours that they would take in economics? Like this, think about, this yeah. truth or this near yeah. truth. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I don't know. I, th I think probably the biggest idea is that incentives matter and mm -hmm. that um, you, um, I mean, I started out earlier talking about how uh, people acting perfectly reasonably can lead to a really stupid outcome. <laughs> right? Yeah, so that's a good, yeah. So individual, rational man, irrational society. Right. And and, uh, and a lot of people had their habit of mind having not taken economics is to is to, you know, look for the explanation elsewhere to look for some moral failing or some other reason for why things turned out. So so in, in economics, it's possible to have, you know, structural, for example, just pick on one thing, uh, structural uh, racism without. It, it's not necessary to have uh, racial animosity at the anywhere in the system. You can produce a system that that is structurally racist or structurally biased against this or that population. It's not necessary for anybody to hate that population, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, and so, when I think of issues, I'm always thinking about okay, what's the underlying structure here, and and how if you change that, would that change people's behaviors in a way that would you know, make the problem go away, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I'm 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 pretty ill-equipped to change people's moral outlooks and to make them better people or to make them hate less. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> I might be able to think about, you know, how the the world that they operate in and and you know the incentives they're operating under, the regulations they're operating under, and how those systematically lead to some things that you know we don't want to see happen. Mm -hmm. A related question I have is, because uh, I, I kind of want to take an economics class now, but uh, 
when I've just as a student in order to like improve becoming a student I've had to like think of me as a student as like a system so yeah what is you know what is uh, driving me to get assignments done so sometimes I'll like reflect on my week and I'll be like well I really wanted to hang out you know with my friends and so that's why I didn't get that assignment done right and that's a, right. a way of understanding how you know incentives weren't aligned such that I got to the certain goal that you know I rationally wanted to get to and so have you thought at all about I guess how economics if it is at all useful for just uh, like that kind of standpoint or that lens, you know, thinking in terms of systems and game theory for like a person to look at their own life and how they, they are achieving their goals or not. Yeah. So, so, so one thing, you know, this is like day three of a microeconomics classes. You talk about marginal cost and, and marginal benefit. You know, so let's see. I'm going to come up with a dumb example probably. But, you know, you want to do your calculus homework, but your girlfriend wants you to, you know, go out for dinner or something. And she's right. like, what do you love calculus more than me? And the, the answer is, you know, at the margin, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. But, you know, the to my total love for you is vastly greater than my total love. But, but the, my, the, the, at the moment, I value that you know, that extra hour of calculus more than that extra hour of you. Right? Mm. <laughs> and so if you can, if so, so maybe there's a way if you can kind of uh, get, get greater clarity on certain values that you hold for certain things in certain mm -hmm. moments, you can start to figure out what is making the machine of your life tick. Yeah. Well, I mean, people... <laughs> People also make bad decisions. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to argue that we're, you know, these perfectly rational, maximizing little automatons that go around doing this and that. And people have, you know, are, are driven by impulses and, and other things. Um, I think there are, uh, so the, the psychology of Kahneman and Tversky, two other non-economists who have won the Nobel Prize in economics. So, yes, it is a very interdis interdisciplinary field. Sort of, th they they are famous for sort of figuring out the systemic ways that people behave irrationally, mm. uh, and that I mean that's worth that's worth knowing, right? Um, uh, and you know if uh, in part because isn't human behavior wonderfully absurd? But but in part also because you can sort of catch it in yourself, you sort of your whatever the bias is that you're operating under. Uh, and, you know, maybe make your economic life, at least, and maybe the rest of your life, uh, uh, a little better as a result of sort of resisting the impulse to do what your, you know, uh, evolved brain wants you to do as opposed to what a rational mm. thinker would do. Yeah, and you can kind of think about personal incentives in the same way you're thinking about the system incentives. So if you, f if you find that you always eat a f extra piece of cake if you leave the cake out right think to yourself <laughs> i'll hide the cake or i'll put a lock on the fridge or whatever right and then you just make it harder on yourself if you get up in the middle of the night you're not gonna go through all that work and you can just kind of you know that's not a studying example but you can you can think to yourself you know you know um have i have i made things too easy for me to to get out of doing homework right. you know things like that so yeah maybe before you go to your other ones yeah. um yeah, one thing that I, I kind of wonder while, I, while I've got you in the room here, um, it's like when it comes to so, – so on the news, sometimes they're listening to the news and they're, they're talking about like the Fed or they're talking about uh, the you know, unemployment numbers or they're talking about a new tax policy or something like that. And, and, and these are decisions that we as citizens – and you, you mentioned you know, microeconomics and citizenship class – that we kind of indirectly um, have an influence on. Like we vote for people who decide for certain economic policies or not, right? And um, I just wonder, sometimes I'm like, my assumption is that economics is probably very complicated. And if I don't, if I haven't studied economics myself, like, and, and maybe if I'm not some kind of expert in economics, then when I'm hearing about this kind of stuff in the news, I, I'm like in no place to be like, oh, that politician is making a bad decision or something like that, because I should just be like, well, oh, this is economics. This is beyond me. 
And so I, I just wonder, um, yeah, do you think that assumption is correct? Yeah, and does it make sense for somebody who hasn't studied this to not basically to be withhold judgment? Would it make sense to withhold judgment about these matters? Well, people are allowed to have opinions. Of well, course, yeah, I'm not you know, talking more, about edu more educated opinions. Speech. Yeah, no more ed more educated opinion is better than less educated opinion. But you know what you're going to find out is that I mean, it's a contested space when you're talking about economics. There are interests that collide with each other, and uh, you're not you're not going to find a chorus of agreement out there, right? <laughs> what you have to do is sort of decide what are first principles here. What do we care about? And and who's making an argument based on that, and who's making an argument based solely on kind of self-interested or, or parochial interests in this way or that way. So, yeah, so how do you cut? I mean, I remember that conundrum, and not just with economics, but, you know, when I was a student, remembering sort of so many of the, of the sort of debates that adults were having. It was like, how do you even cut through the fog? You know, here, this guy looks like a smart guy, and he's saying, yeah. the, he's saying, you know, black, and this guy looks like a smart guy, and he's saying white. And how am I supposed to know I'm just 19, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's a, education is sort of a lifetime-long phenomenon. So, uh, but, I don't, but it shouldn't be professionalized. I mean, everybody has a stake in economic life, and a lot of... A lot of economic policy and regulation is about sort of fairness and how we're going to organize things as a society. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. So you need to be part of that discussion. Yeah. So because the what you just sketched there with like your 19 year olds conundrum, that's that is kind of um, yeah, one of my my main interests right now is, yeah, what do you do in the case where white and black and you know nothing about white or black you're not an expert in either of those things so is your suggestion that it's just like yeah well on the one hand you have some skin in this game and so it makes sense to care and you're not an idiot so it makes sense to have thoughts about it and you just have to acknowledge that there's some things that you are going to be more knowledgeable or more insightful about than others is that kind of what you where you've come in terms of Facing that conundrum, you're talking specifically about economics. Well, you said that it, it's kind of across the board the similar type of issue, right? So, yeah. I, yeah. I'm now I'm thinking about it broadly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but well, you could talk about it specifically with economics if, if that suits you. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, one of the one of the prerogatives of having lived a long time is is you know you've had time to kind of visit some things and figure out where you stand on them and you don't you're not constantly questioning that you know I mean I kind of I kind of have my opinion I'm not a, la a labor economist but I kind of have my opinion about labor law and uh, and uh, occasionally I read an article and I'll just think oh that guy's just making that old argument or this guy yeah so he's got it right um, <coughs> so. Uh, you know, I, it's, um, it's, it's a lifetime process and it's, and it, it, I mean, it should never be like professionalized to the point where nobody can get in on the conversation. Mm, cool. Yeah. Interesting. So do you have any methodological ideas that you hope your students get? So if they're going to think more like an economist after taking your classes, what's that look like? If you could, if you could just like make sure that they come out thinking this way a little bit more. Anything like that? Honestly, I think a lot of what happens when you're 19 and you're taking classes, you learn by imitation, right? You mm -hmm. sort of like inhabit the, you inhabit the argument that you've been presented uh, by your faculty member. And, you know, you'll grow out of it, and you'll realize <laughs> when, you when you bump into other ideas that this, this habit of mind is not large enough to sort of do the things I want to do with it. But... Uh, but just by sheer imitation, um, uh, a lot of is the way a lot of undergraduate learning takes place. I think, I don't I, know. I agree with you about that. But so, like, for instance, earlier you, for instance, earlier you mentioned that um, you thought maybe people think too moralistically about these things. So, so maybe shedding some moralism about how the world works is that a thing that you try to get across in your classes or is that just something else you think 
shedding more, getting like getting making people reason less moralistically? Is it? Yeah, and using and and thinking of cause and effect in terms of respondents to incentives or something like that. Is that yeah. something that you try? Well, that I you mean, hope that, that's what the that's what the field is. So, yeah. So I, yeah, um, I try to model that. Yeah. But I also try to model sort of the limitations of it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I try to put. Um, I try to put meat on the bones on that skeleton so that they can, you know, see it in, in a more vivid sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it doesn't. I mean, there, it's, it's not a, it's not a silver bullet, you know, yeah. one size fits all kind of explanation for things. So, I don't know. One of the things I model is a, is here's somebody who's pushing sixty years old who's still kind of curious about the world. Yeah, mm. you know, still finding new stuff and and uh, and. Uh, you know, doesn't necessarily have you know, the, all the answers, and also is quite capable of making mistakes while at the <laughs> blackboard. You know, yeah. and getting his der- derivation wrong. You know, and 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 so, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's humility. That's, that's, maybe <laughs> maybe that's one of the lessons. modeling humility. <laughs> that's that's the way to think. Of it. Okay, and um, are there resources where we could learn more? I know in economics, there's tons of uh, blogs and mm-hmm. um, access to economic thinking out there but are is there things you could recommend we usually hope for something aimed at a very general audience who maybe don't know anything about economics and then maybe something that if you've had a couple classes you could still learn more if you looked at this resource could be videos could be podcasts could be reading i uh used to be a big fan of paul krugman um he's now a new york times columnist and sort of most of his work is now about national politics. Uh, he still throws in some economics from time to time, but he was one of those guys who, you know, was able to distill and clarify complex issues for everybody's benefit. But his early books on on trade and geography are are written for a generalist audience, uh, and they're really smart. Yeah, so I'm also a big fan of the work of uh, Joe Stiglitz, who used to be chief economist at the World Bank. And has done a variety of other intelligent things, but um, but he's in, in terms of a of a of a uh, a good a good read that an educated person who didn't necessarily know about a lot about economics could grasp uh, and be enlightened by um, anything by Joe Stiglitz would be good. Or Jamie Galbraith, he was actually on my um, dissertation committee. He's uh, he's the son of John Kenneth, the famous Harvard economist. But Jamie is now a very distinguished. Uh, economist and writer in his own right. He's at the LBJ School in in uh, Austin still, I think. Um, but he's written a bunch of. He, he writes on macro topics, but really smart, cosmopolitan, insightful guy. You know, uh, over time, my interests have, have become sort of much more. So we, I didn't quite finish that conversation about you know what I'm working on now. So, sure. So yeah, uh, uh, I, I'm thinking a lot these days about about uh, uh, global climate change and uh, human contribution to that, and specifically one, one of the big sectors that contributes to that is the electricity sector, right? And there's, there's all, there are all of these, this gets back to Lowell Rasmussen and my early transition to thinking about these things instead of thinking about <coughs> currency crises in Latin America. Uh, a, a lot of the, um, there are a lot of sort of micro-scale uh, uh, distributed technologies now that will produce electricity from low-density renewable energy flows, solar, wind, biomass. These were not accessible before. Before it was all very high-density uh, combustion of high-density fossil fuels. And that's you know so something like 35 or 40 percent of the world's CO2 emissions are from the electricity sector. It's mostly burning coal. And now there's some transition to natural gas. But uh, so I think a lot about how is that industry structured? So the energy industry is really, is really highly regulated. You know, people sort of throw out this um, free market shibboleth at you. Like that's, you know, that's the way things need to be. There's, there's no aspect of the energy industry that isn't regulated up to its eyeballs. I mean, it's really... And, and those policies are what determine the, the incentives and the behavior and the outcomes. And so since about 1990, we've been moving away from a completely regulated electricity sector where, you know, you had geographically 
that, that each utility had a geographic uh, footprint that was unique and nobody else could compete in it. We're moving from that to a, to a competitive market. And there's, and, uh, there's been some really interesting developments there. And so the, the real challenge is how can this old market structure that, was, that has these private investor-owned utilities at the center of it, how can it adapt to a world where instead of having central station power and it's all sent over high-tension wires to local distribution grids, and uh, all the incentives are to burn as much coal as you can. How, can, how can that transition to an industry where a lot of the power is produced at the nodes and it's done in a decentralized fashion? It all used to flow through one control panel. And so all you had to do was sort of watch what the demand was and follow it with the dial. And that's how you made sure the lights stayed on. But now you've got millions of you know decentralized solar panels and wind turbines and other kinds of technologies that are out on the periphery. So part of it is technological, but the economic part is, um, you know, th those, those decentralized units have to see a price signal someplace in order to know whether this is the time to turn on or not. They have to be rewarded in proportion to, to the services that they're affording to the grid, right? And so that, that's, that's where economics is absolutely critical because it sends sort of decentralized price signals out that indicate, you know, this would be a really good time <laughs> to add power to the grid because it's really expensive to get there from some other source, right? So uh, I work on, I, I think a lot about that. I just, I invented a new course on that last semester. Uh, uh, you want to say the name? And the yeah, what did I call it? It was called the Green Energy Transition but it was really a deep dive on industry economics. Like, this is the way this industry is actually structured. This, this is who owns what. These are the different parts of it. This is how they're articulated with each other. And, uh, and this, these are the new pressures. It used to be all about security of supply, just making sure the lights stayed on <clears throat> and the prices were low. But now there's, there's this uh, externality of pollution associated with certain kinds of production and not with others and at the same time the technology has evolved so that it, it it's not only it's not a read-only grid anymore it's a read-write grid there's power flowing both directions so i'm really interested in that so uh, sorry just to, to cl clarify it's like the idea there is that these nodes don't collect the electricity unless it's at a good price for them to do so is that what you were saying well so, so they're going to get paid. So if you get a solar panel, there's no reason to turn it off. It's going to get paid. Well, well there, there could be circumstances. But, but basically, it's going to get paid all the time. But you, what you want to do is you, you want to set up the, the payment system such that what it gets paid corresponds to the contribution it's making to the grid. And that varies a lot over the course of the day. So the value of power when you know so picture like the hottest day of the year uh late july everybody's got their air conditioners on they all get home from work and they crank up the house air conditioner that's when the system is peaking now you know every generator everywhere in the system has to be turned on well if you look at sort of the supply stack or the supply curve for that power the the it's the the, the generation is is ordered online in order of how expensive it is. So we're always running the nuclear because that's free, or basically free. And we're always running the, the uh, uh, hydropower because all you gotta do is open a sluice. That doesn't there's no variable cost associated with that. Okay, so, you're, so you're, run you're always running the wind because there's no variable cost. You're always running the solar because there's no variable cost. But as, as uh, the demand peaks, You've got all that stuff online, and then you've got to bring in, okay, now we got to turn the coal plants on, okay, and then we run out of coal plants, and okay, now we got to turn on, you know, more expensive natural gas plants, and now we got to turn on. Finally, on the most expensive hour or the most expensive day of the year, they're basically, they've got uh, sort of warehouses full of jet engines, yeah, that they just, like, fire them up, because you can turn them on and turn them off in no time, but they're, but they're super expensive, right? And if so, so the fact that you installed a bunch of solar means that you don't have to turn on your jet engines, but you really need the solar to be rewarded for saving you having to turn on the jet engines, right? Because that's the true economic value of having that resource, right? 
So that's a totally non-trivial matter to figure out how to price that in a way. But if you want to get, I mean, you don't want solar at any cost. So you don't want wind at any cost. But a rational way to think about that is, you know, let's price the externality, the CO2, and let's price the actual marginal cost of producing, and let's, let's value these other resources at avoided marginal cost. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, so, so that's what that's about. But it turns out a lot of the interesting work that's being done is actually in sort of the, uh, the nonprofit sphere. So uh, Minnesota has some, Minnesota is rich in nonprofits that work on environmental issues. Fresh Energy is a good one in the Twin Cities. A couple of UMM students have worked there. There's a bunch of there's a bunch of water related ones. There's one just south of here called Cure Clean Up the River Environment. There's a bunch of uh, environmental nonprofits who are doing really interesting work, like like Cure. The people down in Montevideo were really essential in convincing Otter Tail Power to not double down on coal. They had planned to build a Big Stone Two plant an hour west of here, and because some former UMM student dressed up in an otter suit and went out there and <laughs> <Wow>. protested <laughs> along with, you know, 75 other people that Cure had gotten to the meetings. And they just sort of humiliated the company into not doing that. Whoa, uh, that's amazing. Well, okay. And I think they can take a, a portion of the credit anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so there's there's a lot of interesting things happening at the nonprofit level and, and uh, as I sort of settled into late middle age, that's that's kind of what I'm connecting with and trying to provide economic expertise to people who are really good at activism, uh, but maybe don't know the first thing about economics. Mm. <laughs> right? So, um, so a lot of my environmentalist friends really have not the first clue. And so... Yeah, that seems like a really cool space to be in because that's kind of where a little bit of my question was coming from. It's like, yes, certainly we're not all good at everything. And right. so there's some stuff like economics that's so complicated. And so it's yeah. cool that you get to kind of uh, you know, bridge that knowledge gap for some people who are doing stuff that you agree with. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you for the interview. <laughs> my pleasure. All right. Okay, thanks again to Arna Kildegard. Adam, what did we learn today? Yeah, today, today I learned just, just the importance of incentives. I mean, any system that you look at that people are involved in, there's some type of incentive at play. And I just find myself, you know, listening to the news and not really taking that into consideration. And so I think that's just something valuable to have at the forefront of my mind so that I can maybe better understand what is truly going on in, in you know, various situations. Because like he talked about, a lot of the times it's not just you know, down to somebody's character flaw or something. It's mm-hmm. down to the fact that just the system is set up in such a way as to produce certain kinds of outcomes. Yeah, I think a lot about incentives in the classroom when I'm teaching. And, you know, it's not the same as the big macroeconomic question, but there's still this, like, students are going to respond to incentives, right? And also understanding what the students' incentives are when they're in the class. So uh, one of the first things I do is give them a little... A sheet where they write down why they took the class and that gives you a wealth of information right um, sometimes it's just to get the general education credit to, you know like they don't really care about the class itself they just need this to check a box like we say sometimes do you get some students who actually write that down yeah and I tell them they can because again that information is useful yeah it's not it's not if I take it personally I'm getting in the way of being a better teacher, I think. So so I, it's important for me to know if that's the case. Um, or they can say it's required for my major, or they can say I'm really excited about learning this topic, or, you know, there's a, there's a, a number of possible answers. And furthermore, if they're, I also ask them their major or what they're interested in studying, because suppose they say I'm really interested in sports management. I have a class on professional ethics where there are a lot of sports management students because I think they need it for their major or it's one of two classes they need for the major, something like that. And a lot of them will say I'm a sports management major and I'm just taking this because it's required. Now, I still want them to learn things I'm teaching in class, right? (laughs) That doesn't mean that I don't have a responsibility there and also an interest in, I want all sports management majors to think a little bit about professional ethics, right? And so, um, you know, I'm not going to have a hundred percent success rate in getting them to think about the things that I, that I 
bring up in class and we cover a range and I usually ask them if there was something that in particular that they found more interesting than other things and usually it's just like a wide range I don't get a particular uh, majority answer on any particular topic but going back to the original point uh, they they they're signaling to me they care more about sports management than this class so I will bring up assignments where or readings or articles that address sports management type of topics and I'll say I'm going to illustrate this point with an article I could use one that's philosophy majors would prefer or I could use one that sports management majors would prefer and then I'll use that and have them think over and be able to use their um, pre-existing concepts they walk into the class with and people like doing that people like drawing connections between things they already know People do like learning new things, but not all new things, not radically new things that they can't keep track of one thing to the next thing. There's like a middle space between new and connecting to old. And so uh, the fact that they're just taking this because it's required and they're actually more interested in this other thing helps me try to align my class with their interests, right? And what what's important to them in taking the class. It's cool that you're you're doing a, that on on your end. I was just talking with mm-hmm. a friend who who's they're in law school right now, and we were both kind of talking about how we have some classes that we are less interested than others, just like the sports management management folks that that you're talking well, about. Well, some of them. I'm not trying to paint a broad brush. Well, sure, but <laughs> yeah, right. There 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 are some who don't find the philosophy class the center of, of incredible. Their I don't believe <laughs> <Right>. it. <laughs> And, and similarly, my friend and I were talking about this because we have maybe certain topics or certain classes that we have to do maybe lengthy assignments for. And so we find ourselves in this pickle where you need to do it just as much as you needed to do the other things. And yeah. yet you no longer have the same set of incentives. And, and the incentives in this case are just like, oh, I want to learn about this, right? I want to know this, right? Yeah. In the case of the thing that you are interested in, that, that can be one that drives you to get things done. But now you're in a situation where you don't have that anymore. And mm-hmm. so him and I were kind of talking about this problem. So because we need just as much, we need at least a level of motivation to get that stuff done. And so how do we kind of fill in that gap yeah. that, that has uh, created there? And, and one, one thing that we kind of, you know, we're talking about is, doing the thing that you're trying to do for your students, which is draw connections between what is being discussed and what we are interested. Mm -hmm. Because if we can do that, then all of a sudden we're going to have the interest that we thought we didn't have before. And that's going to be a driver in getting things done. Yeah. And sometimes there's not going to be a, uh, there's no like secret lock that you can, you get the key and then you, and then you've, you know, you're going to suddenly love this topic. Sometimes it's not going to click ever, right? But the other thing that you're mentioning, so I w- so for me, the point, the incentive that my students have is to get this GE credit, this general education credit. All, stu- all grades as- act as incentives for most students in the class. Getting an A is itself another incentive, right? But then there's the long-term incentives, right? So when, even when you're saying, we still have to try to do well on this thing we're not interested in, well, what is the incentive to do well? You don't have to. You could just get a bad grade, right? But right, the thing is you yeah. care about the good grade. That's the incentive. Yeah. And um, so I, d- I think designing your assignments, you have to think about what the students' incentives are there too. Now, that doesn't mean give up all your principles of teaching, right? You could, you can, If you think it's really important that they write long research papers and that's what's best for their education, then that's what you should do. But... You should also think about why are they taking the class? Are they taking the class to have written a long research paper? And if that's very few of the students' incentives, right, if they just care more about grade or getting a degree or something like that, in a liberal arts college, that's, that's going to be a factor. There's going to be a, you're gonna have a bunch of students who are not hardcore, only caring about this thing because they view a career in this thing. You have to take into account that, you know, what matters to these students is, something other than what the teacher is interested in sometimes. So I do think that people should, teachers should evaluate, at least give some thought to the fact that students might not be taking the class for the reasons that the teacher hopes that they're taking the class, but that that's okay. That's, you know, you can't be so precious with your 
area of research in the and your interest in the class that you're teaching, you can try to bring that to the as many students as you can. And obviously I try to do that and I think people should try to do that. But I think you should also understand where the students are coming from, what's important to them is not necessarily what's important to you as the teacher. And that concludes this episode. Links to the references our guest mentioned can be found in the show notes. Before we go here, a big thank you to the Mellon Foundation and the Humanities Division for supporting this podcast. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals participating and do not represent the University of Minnesota Morse or the University of Minnesota System. You can find our podcast on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you want to help out the show, please leave us a review on the iTunes store or share the podcast with others. Thanks for listening. This has been Humanities Engaged. <laughs> <laughs>